Thank you, Beth. I want to pray one more time this morning, asking God for help for our brother Colton Yarbrough, a member of our church, our church planting resident. He has the opportunity to preach this morning uh, at a church without a shepherd. And as we preached from John 10 last week about Jesus Christ, our good shepherd, and applied uh, pastoral wisdom to our lives uh, in that pastors should take Jesus as uh, our example of what shepherding looks like. I just want to pray for Colton this morning. So uh, would you join with me in this pray one, one last time? Father, we bow before you. We thank you for Christ Jesus, who is our good shepherd. And I pray that you'd help Colton this morning as he has the opportunity to preach your word to a people that he loves dearly, uh, that you would uh, help his eyes to be on you, Jesus, the good shepherd that he would trust you and follow you, uh, that, that he would trust that you would call yours to be your own, that he would trust your words to do the work by your Spirit. Pray that you'd give him boldness and courage to proclaim the Word uh, in that other body of Christ nearby. And I, I pray, God, that uh, you would um, strengthen him and strengthen that church um, in a way that would only be uh, able to give honor and glory to you. And so help him. Help me, I pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. John chapter 10. Thank you, Beth, for reading our text this morning. Uh, we are continuing through this series looking at uh, the Apostle John's words, his gospel, his uh, proclamation of the good news, specifically of Jesus Christ. And my title this morning is A War of Words in a World of Works. And we live in the midst of a war of words ourselves, as did Jesus, as we'll see in this passage. But never in, in the midst of history have we probably been in a greater war of words uh, and, and display of works than now. Because... Uh, when my dad was a kid, his father had to go outside, walk to the edge of the street, and pick up the words of the newspaper bundled up with a rubber band. That is, if my dad was timely on his newspaper route uh, that day, that newspaper would be there for him to pick up and to read the words, but he had to actively go and get it. And now, in the midst of this sermon, many of you will probably get a buzz on your hip or a ding on your watch of some sort of words that have been posted uh, online, some news article, some Facebook posts, uh, some, uh, something that has been said online. We are being bombarded with words and a display of works, uh, some good, some bad. But we're in the midst of a war of words, and it's on display for everyone to see. It could be about religion, could be about news, could be about sexuality, could be about gender, could be about food, uh, could be about health, it could be about whatever. But we are so divided now that if, if you think one food is okay, another person will probably think that you're oppressed by a demon as they accuse Jesus of, because you would like that food or, or think that way or vote for that person or go to that place or this side or the other. 
And so in the midst of our war of words, we can imagine what is happening in the midst of Jesus' situation then. And there is, though the battles may be different, though the topics may be different, 2,000 years difference, uh, one thing that I know they were in the midst of a, a war of words then that we still are in now is who is Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? Or what do you not believe about Jesus? And the world is divided on that. In fact, I saw this yesterday. If you were here, a part of our International Food Festival event here at the YMCA, there were many different cultures represented with foods from their home countries. And, and with that would also come many different religions represented, even um, by their certain dress or even on their tables. And I even had the opportunity to talk with a, a man from Syria. And just so happened, I was re studying for our sermon and reading Syrian history this week because of this passage. And I was able to use that as an inroad with him and, and to, to talk with him and to talk about the jasmine that is all over Syria and Damascus and how good it smells. And I too planted and already killed three jasmine plants <laughs> at my house in the past two years. Um, so we had more to talk about. But I assumed uh, he was uh, Muslim, and I had told him that I'd been studying for my sermon at, at this Christian church that meets here at the Y and said, I assume you're, you're Muslim, being from Syria. And he said, yes, but we believe the same thing about Jesus. And I said, really? He said, yeah, we believe the same thing about Jesus. And I said, well, that's not really true because you would believe that Jesus is a good person, even maybe a, a prophet, but I believe Jesus is the Son of God and Savior of the world. And after a long pause, he looked at me and said, you believe what you believe, I believe what I believe. And our conversation was over uh, at that. The world is divided. Uh, you either believe that Jesus is who he said he was, or you don't. There's no middle ground. Uh, there's no, honestly, that kind of a statement, you believe what you believe, I'll believe what I believe, is actually unbelief in who Jesus actually said that he was. Jesus' world was divided on who he was. Our world is divided in, uh, regarding who he is. And yet, um, there is a, a strong challenge in our passage this morning to believe and good encouragement and good reason to believe. And if you come in here and you're not a Christian and you have yet to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, let me encourage you to listen to not my words, but Jesus' very own words to an unbelieving uh, population of people who did not believe him at first. Believe what he says, and he even gives the challenge, if you don't believe my words, at least believe my works. And so Jesus lived in the midst of a, a war of words in a world of works, uh, and we too live in the same. Uh, if you're taking notes, I want you to note this overarching statement that uh, Jesus' words and works demand a response. To believe or not to believe? You can finish the statement. That is the question. Uh, 
This is the, the truth of this passage before us in John 10, 22 through 42. The first n- note of two, really, in these two sections that Jesus presents himself again could be characterized by this. Jesus' words testified that he was the Christ. Jesus' words in verse 22 through 30 testified that he was the Christ. And our passage comes on the heels of this great discourse in John chapter 10 where Jesus identified himself as both the door of the sheep but also the good shepherd of the sheep. Uh, He said, leaving the the temple uh, from John chapter 9 after healing the blind man amidst a group of Pharisees and Jews who doubted him and didn't believe in him, he declared to them that he and he alone was the door and the way to God, to be among the sheepfold of God. And he said that for those who come by faith through him as the door to God, he would be their good shepherd. He would lead them in and out, and they would find pasture. They would find protection, and they would find provision. And this was a a sweet blessing. And, And yet, even after that, after Jesus said that, look at the division. The war of words uh, in a world of works in verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these, what's the word? (laughs) Words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? And others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the last story that the Apostle John tells us. And sometime later, uh, uh, this next story occurs, but John puts them back to back to prove a point. Uh, In the midst of people being divided over Jesus' words and his works, the fact that he had healed a blind man, he puts forth uh, this story. It's probably a couple months later. Uh, after the Feast of Tabernacles. Now we're here at the time of the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication is also known as the Festival of Lights, which may sound a little more familiar to you. If that doesn't sound familiar, uh, the Christmas time celebration of Hanukkah probably would sound familiar. That's the Feast of Dedication that John is referencing here, giving us a a time timeline of these events. But the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Lights was not one of the original seven feasts of the Old Testament. It was like um, the Feast of Purim in the book of uh, Esther that the Jews began celebrating their deliver- deliverance um, from the king in that time. This too is a celebration of deliverance under persecution, and it's the persecution under the Syrian Greek king Antiochus who called himself Epiphanes, which meant God manifest. So just keep that in the back of your mind until we get to the end of our passage when they claim that Jesus has called himself something, uh, that they are in the midst of celebrating and remembering they were under the persecution of a Syrian king who called himself God. Um, 
Antiochus had taken over the temple. Uh, He had set up an altar to Zeus in the Jews' temple, and he had sacrificed a pig on the altar, which was unclean in the Jews' mind that day. And, And that was the last straw for him. Uh, or for the Jews. And so a priest ma- named Mattathias and his five sons, including Judas the Hammer Maccabees. And so Jim Adler was not the first hammer uh, guy to have the nickname. This was Judas. Um, Mattathias' son, they ri- rose up and had this revolt against Antiochus and end up overthrowing him and getting the temple back, cleansing restoring, reconsecrating the temple. Remember that. Reconsecrating the temple of God and making it holy. Um, In which when they went into that place, rabbinical tradition actually says that they could only find one small vial of olive oil to be able to light the lamp in the temple. And it was only a day's worth, but they went ahead and lit the lamp. Uh, and proceeded to make more oil, which took a week's time, and yet that little bit of oil ended up lasting all week long, which is why, if you know any Jews that celebrate Hanukkah, they have the festival of lights in which they light eight uh, candles on their menorah throughout the year. Um, This is the feast that they are celebrating. This is the meaning behind the feast that they're celebrating. That all happened in about 164 B.C. And so they've been celebrating this feast for um, nearly 200 years by this time. And John is telling us this is the time in which Jesus was at Jerusalem. It was winter. They celebrate this near our Christmas And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. It was cold rather than being out and about in the open air. They were in this colonnade area where there was protection from the cold. And in fact, that would be the place where the early church in the book of Acts, chapter 3, Peter would preach. In Acts chapter 5, it says many more believed in that same very place. And yet, in our passage today, it doesn't seem like any would believe there that day. And so here is where the Jews gathered in verse 24. They gathered around him. So picture the scene around him. He's encircled in this Uh, threatening circle of Jews who are antagonistic towards him. And they begin saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not a part of my flock. They had had enough of Jesus' images and illustrations. And Jesus had all but said, I am the Christ to them. In every other form and fashion, he had said it. Um, But lest they arrest him when his hour had not come. He had not said those words, at least in our gospel accounts. But he had said everything else. In fact, so much so, Jesus said, I already told you, and you do not believe. You don't believe who I said that I am, 
You don't believe the truths that I've proclaimed to you. You don't even believe the works that I have done in my Father's name, which bear witness about me. And then he indicts them and says, the reason you don't believe my words, the reason you don't believe my works is because you are not a part of my flock. You see, though there was some time difference between the beginning part of John 10 and the end of John 10, the Apostle John puts them together because Jesus is making a similar point here. Of He is the good shepherd. And those who believe in him are his sheep. And those who do not are not his sheep. They're not of his sheepfold. And so John persuasively puts these stories back to back to, to prove a point and to encourage, even command belief uh, amidst a, an unbelieving group of, uh, of people. And so not only do they not believe, but he, he contrasts that in verse 27, and he describes who his sheep are. And these are not unfamiliar to us because we saw some of this in our passage last week in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus said there's a difference between those who are my sheep and those who are not. And as he just said, you don't believe me. You, you don't even hear my words because you're not a part of my flock. You're not a part of my, my sheep. I asked Graham to read Psalm 95 uh, this morning as our call to worship because after those amazing opening verses in 95, 1 through 5, it continues on saying in verse 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. And the psalmist writes, <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews would later quote this, three or four times, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The writer of Psalm 95 uh, urged the people in his day that if they heard the voice of God, to not harden their hearts. And there before these people is God himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Hearing the very words of God, and yet as a, we see it, the, the end result of this passage is that they harden their hearts. And yet the encouragement of the psalmist a thousand years ago that was quoted by the writer to the Hebrews, or I'm sorry, the psalm that was written 3,000 years ago that was quoted by the writer of Hebrews 2,000 years ago is still applicable to our lives today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
Don't act like this group of Jews that are divided about who Jesus is. Accept Jesus' words of who he is. Accept his works that have proven that what he says is true. Jesus' sheep hear his words, and they believe him. This clear identification point of the sheep. <clears throat> Not only that, but Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. We often talk about the importance of knowing God, but how much more important is it that he knows us? For we would not know him if he had not first known us. The same is true of love. We wouldn't love him if he had not first loved us and sent his one and only son for us. And so to be known by God is so important. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. I mean, everyone in this room is, is called out in that moment by the Lord's very own words, the Holy Spirit's words. God knows whether or not you are his. You may have been able to fool me. You may have been able to fool your spouse, but you have not and you will not fool the Lord. He knows. He is sure of that. In fact, he, Jesus warns in Matthew 7, verse 22, that on that day when he returns, he will say, uh, a, a man will say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It, it is in, important, it is paramount that you be known by God. And you can know that you're known by God if you hear His voice and have believed in Him and are seeking to know Him more. That is proof that you have been known by God. But Jesus continues on and, and says, and they follow me. Um, if you say you're a sheep and yet you don't follow Christ, I have reason to doubt that you're actually a sheep. And this is, what, this is what Jesus is getting at. He's trying to draw a line in the sand, which in fact became famous because of battles that Antiochus himself fought back uh, in the day with Egypt. Jesus is trying to draw, draw a line in the sand and say, you're either my sheep or you're not. And if you are, these are characteristics of who you are. You hear my voice, I know you, and you follow me. Which is why Jesus so many times said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. If you want to follow me, take up your cross and come after me. Jesus used this type of language often. And it's another reason why this is such a rebuke to these Jews who thought they were God's people, who thought they were God's sheep, who had heard Psalm 95 years and years and years uh, ago. They thought that they were God's sheep, which is why not only is that indicting on the Jews, but so is what Jesus concludes this section with. In verse 28, I give them eternal life, speaking of his sheep, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
And now in verse 29, he likens his work to his father's work, that they're one and the same. Because he said that no one will snatch them out of my hand in verse 28. And then in verse 29, he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Jesus encourages his sheep in this passage. Those who were listening there at the Feast of Dedication, who uh, had potentially believed in him, believed that he was the Messiah, believed that his works proved that he was the, the Christ that he said he was, this is, would have been encouragement for them. It would have been encouragement for the early church reading these accounts of Jesus' life to know what his sheep are characterized, and to be encouraged by this promise of eternal life. Christian, have you pondered, as we sang earlier, the gift of eternal life? The fact that though you may die on this earth, you will not ever perish. And I know that doesn't make sense horizontally and physically, but vertically and spiritually it makes total sense. Have you pondered that and thought what a gift that is and what a promise that is? Or have you considered the, the truth that, that Jesus gives here that is um, expounded upon by Paul later in Romans chapter 8 that no one, no one, no thing, nothing ever, Paul would say, would be able to snatch you out of Jesus' hand. Christian, be encouraged by that when you fall into sin this afternoon or tomorrow at work or when throughout the night you're, you're struggling with doubt and struggling with uh, despair, when you press on later this week and you find out news that you would have never imagined that no one will be able to snatch you out of his hand. Not Satan, not his army, not any other person, not any of your own sins or bad works. Nothing will be able to snatch you out of your hand. Why? Because it wasn't your hand, your words, your works that saved you in the first place. It was his. And if his hands began this whole thing, his hands will bring it to an end. And so we have this assurance this encouragement that even though you may not feel like a Christian later this week, later this month, later this year, go back to what Jesus has said about His sheep. Do you hear His voice? Are you believing in Him? Are, are you repenting of sin and, and f obeying and following after Him? Are those true and characteristics of your life? Now, if not, let me encourage you, yes repent and believe once and for all. I don't want to give any of you false assurance. If none of those things are true of you, you ought to repent and believe. For church attendance, church donations, church talk will not save you. Church acts of baptism and the Lord's Supper will not save you in the end. And so yes, repent and believe, but if you have and if those characteristics that Jesus gave of his flock are true of you, even though you don't feel much like a Christian in that moment, rest assured, 
that you are. That you're in His hands. You're in His Father's hands. Now this would have been um, a, a damnation on the Jews, if you will. I mean, it would have been uh, the harshest rebuke that, that they would have ever experienced. Because according to the Old Testament, uh, they were God's people. They were the ones that were in the Father's hand. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. There is none that can deliver out of my hand, God said. Or Isaiah 49, 16 said that his people were engraved on the palms of his hands. But the problem was is that there was a group of people that assumed they were in God's hands, engraved on his hands, rather than by faith um, being known by God being saved by the grace of God uh, and being placed in his hands by, by the Lord himself. Don't assume like these Jews did in, the, in Jesus' day that they were in the Father's hands. And because that was such a rebuke, when Jesus finishes saying, I and the Father are one, not, not saying that they're one person, for we sung earlier, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. Jesus has already, in the Gospel of John, prayed to the Father. They're distinct, and yet they're one. It's the beautiful mystery of the Trinity, uh, worthy of worshiping our God. And yet, in their eyes, Jesus had just claimed to be God. And so in verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Something they had already done. Because Jesus, in their eyes, was blaspheming God. Claiming to be God. And according to the Old Testament, blasphemy was against the law and was punishable by stoning and though they should have gone through the normal means of bringing Jesus before the courts, they hadn't been able to catch him up to that point many different times. He had evaded them from time to time. So they weren't going to allow the courts to deal with this. They were going to take matters into their own hands, literally, and pick up stones to be able to stone Jesus in their response uh, to him. Obviously, it's a response of unbelief at its least, even more so, ready to stone him because of his words and because of his works. And rather than evading them and, and disappearing like he had done several times before, he, he gives them just a little bit more uh, in this scene. Graciously, uh, he, he pauses to be able to uh, ask them a question. And it says, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? You know, Graham's laughing. What, what, a, what a comment. Uh, he knew he was blameless before God, blameless before men. Uh, the Apostle John has laid out his gospel intentionally to show both Jesus' words and his works. And he lays out seven miracles and signs or good works that prove that he is who he said he was. And so Jesus opens the floor up and says, which, which of my good works are you going to stone me for? Was it the changing the water to wine? Uh, 
Yeah, was it that one? Is that the miraculous work that you're going to? What about healing the lame man who had not walked since birth in uh, chapter? Is that? Which, oh, I know it was on the Sabbath, and so you didn't like that. But remember, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Not that one. What about the healing of the, the blind man? Uh, is, that, is that what you're going to stone me over? Which of these good works are you going to stone me over? Stirring up more in those who don't believe, but also probably drawing in some who are saying, yeah, yeah, like wh- what about his works? Do you remember what I read earlier in John chapter 10, verse 21? There were others who had said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? There was a growing crowd of people who were considering, is Jesus who he said he was? Do his works really prove that he was the Son of God? Which is what this last section is, is really getting at. And this is the second point. After Jesus' words testify that he was the Christ, here in verse 31 through 42, note that Jesus' works proved he was the Son of God. Not only his words, but now his works prove that he was the Son of God. And yet these people didn't believe it. They didn't want to believe that Jesus and the Father were one. They didn't want to believe, like my Syrian friend yesterday, that Jesus was the Son of God. And in fact, that's not just true of my Syrian friend uh, yesterday. That's true of many people who call themselves Christians. People who would even call themselves an evangelical Christian. A Christian who believes in the good news of Jesus Christ. 42%, according to a study in 2022, of evangelical Christians say that Jesus is a good moral teacher, but not the Son of God. 42%. And so this is why in our war of words, uh, in, in the midst of a world of works that we are living in right now, our culture, we can't take people at their word when they say they're a Christian. Sadly, we have to ask, what does that mean to you? What does it mean that you're a Christian? Because many people who call themselves Christians don't even believe that Jesus is the Son of God, like these Jews here on this very day. And so, enraged even more by Jesus' question regarding which of the good works are they going to stone Him for, they answer Him in verse 33, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man... Make yourself God. When in fact, the exact opposite is true. He is God. He has made himself man to save mankind so that they could be with God. They were critiquing him and about to stone him for what has always been true of Jesus, the Son of God. That he is God. This is, in fact, what the Apostle John, in writing the gospel, opened up his very story of the life of Jesus with. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
Jesus is God. What was new was that Jesus wrapped on flesh and became a man. That was new to them in the first century. It was new in history. And it's a truth that is still true now and will be true forever. Jesus is God, but he became a man and still has glorified flesh in heaven with his Father to this day and will when we get to be with him forever in heaven. And so what they condemned him for was actually something that had always been true. And yet the, the opposite of that is what was new in that moment. And so Jesus answered them, is it not written? And, and here we could take a lesson from Jesus. Uh, if I would have been able to have the opportunity yesterday to, to talk more uh, with that brother, then uh, I, I would have been uh, I would have done well to have used his own copy of his scriptures to be able to logically prove that Jesus was the Son of God or that his scriptures didn't uh, testify to the truth because that's what Jesus does. He goes to the Jewish scriptures, the, the Old Testament, uh, most importantly the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and he commends them, in fact, Look in verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. And there he quotes from Psalm 82, verse 6. And he uses their own scriptures to, to prove to them uh, uh, that it was okay for him to call himself the Son of God. For back in Psalm chapter 82, uh, the, the psalmist writes, uh, I think, a rebuke against the Jewish leaders of the day. And, and it says that, that God even calls them little g gods, these Jewish leaders, that they're rulers, they're kind of little g gods of the earth because they represent God's big g gods, rule and authority on the earth. And and God calls them, these rulers, little g-gods. And so Jesus says, doesn't in your law, in the Old Testament, don't your own scriptures, which you say cannot be broken, will not fall short, doesn't your Old Testament scriptures call earthly rulers little g-gods? Well, if that's the case, how much more so, if I'm actually the Son of God, can I call myself God. You call earthly rulers gods. Why can I not call me as a as heavenly God God here on this earth? And so he uses his own scriptures to to prove that their logic is not right and that if they would just shut their mouths for a second. Jesus's brother James when he writes in his letter has good advice. Be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Probably a lesson James, Jesus' brother, learned a lot in his household growing up, uh, and one that he passed on to the New Testament church, one that these Pharisees and these Jews could have done well to uh, apply to their own lives if they would have just thought for a second regarding their own scriptures. Even in that moment, hearing the very words of the Son of God 
seeing that their logic didn't make sense. And just consider, maybe he is God. Maybe he is. So Jesus quoting that in verse 35, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus said, you're unwilling to call me the one that the Father consecrated. And and remember, Jesus is speaking there in the temple at the Feast of Dedication when they remember the re-consecration of the temple. And now here, the true temple of God, Jesus Christ, consecrated by God Himself, holy, set apart, is standing before them and they're unwilling to call Him God. They're willing to have this Great big party and feast for a building, but unwilling to have it for the true temple that stands before them. Why? Because they don't believe. Had they believed, they would have realized the greatness that was before them in the person of Jesus, not the building with the lights. The same is true of us in our day and age. When we gather together as a church, what's most important is the person Jesus Christ, not the building and the lights. And we have to remember that. Yet they were unwilling. And yet Jesus, you can, can you hear the, the passion and the pleading of Him in this moment with one last opportunity? Because it, it doesn't seem like He'll be in, in this kind of a crowd any longer after He goes away from them. But with one last plea and cry uh, urging them, Saying in verse 37, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. He's given them an out. Saying, look, if all that I have done don't prove that I am from God and then I'm the Son of God, don't believe me. I'm just like all of those other false messiahs who have come before. Um, don't Put me in that category if my works do not prove uh, that I am the, the Son of God. But then he goes on, um, saying in verse 38, But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, uh, believe the works that you may know. There's that word that Jesus mentioned earlier. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am the Father. I understand for some of you in coming to Christ, um, you wanted proof. You wanted surety. You wished, as some of my friends have even said, if I could have seen what Jesus did, I would believe. But, but, but I, don't, I don't get to see it. I just have to read about it. And yet, we're going into this story later on in the Gospel of John. I think John sandwiches this passage between the Good Shepherd and between his greatest uh, earthly work in John chapter 11. 
We've seen great works of Jesus up to this point, but chapter 11 is going to be the greatest, uh, except for his, his own uh, miracle of resurrection on his own body. But he's about to raise Lazarus. And John, who's writing, according to John 20, 31, that you might believe. He's included these works in this gospel so that you might believe. Those who at the end of the first century didn't get a chance to see Jesus' actual works. They weren't there during those times. He knew that his church in the first century was going to be the same for all of those who came after us, us included. And even though you weren't there, we have this convincing proof from the Apostle John proving that Jesus is who he said he was. Sandwiched between this great work in John chapter 11, but uh, that's even... um, overshadowed by Jesus' own resurrection, which is historically one of the most uh, accurately proven historical events of all time. And we ought to believe him. If you can't believe Jesus' words, just believe his, his works, Jesus says. And there have been many who have read these Gospels uh, and studied history who have come to believe Jesus' words because his works have been proven true. I wonder if that's you. I wonder if that's you. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the Old Testament, as they did here in the New Testament, and as many are still doing, as they did in verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. For it was not his hour. He came to to live and to die. And it was not his time to die yet. He still had work to do. And yet, John tells us a little bit more of the story that he went away, again, this time across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, or John did no work, but everything that John said about this man was true. And because of that, John tells us that many believed in him there. Many believed in Jesus there across the Jordan in what you might call enemy territory, but not many were willing to believe in him there in Jerusalem. There is a dividing line. You have to consider whether Jesus is who he said he was or whether he's not. You have to consider whether his works prove that he is the Son of God or or that you want to deny them. You have to consider whether or not the Lord is doing what he can while on this earth to convince you that he is God, that you might repent, that you might believe and be saved? Has the Lord given you the family that he's given you, that you might be raised to hear these gospel truths for many years? Has the Lord given you a friend or a family member who's invited you here today to be able to hear these things? What a gift! that you would hear these things. And the word that is encouraged, again, both Old Testament, New Testament by the writer of Hebrews, I just want to echo again. The writer of Hebrews 
repeated it three or four times. I could repeat it seven or eight times. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Believe. I was encouraged by a story this week in closing of a man named Sir Lionel Lucku, who lived in this past century, which now, you know, 1900s, but was himself a an Indian who grew up in Guyana in South America uh, when his father moved there. And uh, when he, he grew up, he had been raised in a nominal Christian home, but he, he grew up to go into the medical practice and got squeamish. So he went to law and he studied law and he became a lawyer. And he has the Guinness Book of World Records for consecutive murder acquittals of 245 in a row. Um, so this, this man is well known, and, and at the, towards the end of his life, when he was about 64, uh, he was considering and studying the works of Jesus. Uh, and upon studying uh, the proof and the evidence of the resurrection, came to believe in the words of Jesus as well, that he was the Son of God. And it radically transformed his life. He became a great apologist, uh, impacted people uh, that you may know, like Lee Strobel in his writings of the case uh, for Christ and the case for Christianity, uh, and many others, uh, and, and spoke to crowds of, uh, of students and, and people um, trying to prove that the works, the greatest work of Jesus in the death and resurrection um, Prove that his words were also true as well. And he, he says this, I've spent more than 42 years as a defense trial lawyer appearing in many parts of the world, and I'm still in active practice at that time. And I've been fortunate to secure a number of successes in jury trials, and I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance, or I might say belief, by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. That's pretty strong words coming from a pretty smart brother, and I can now say brother in Christ, who came to believe not Jesus' words at first, but his works at first, and yet came to believe his words as well, and it transformed his life. I pray it would transform your life as well as you believe. But today you have to make your own response uh, in the midst of this war of words and this world of works. You have to decide to believe or not to believe. Let's pray. God, would you help us? I pray that you would open the eyes of those who are here, open the ears of those who are here, give new hearts uh, that they might believe. God, I pray that hearing your words and hearing of your works, Lord, that they would become convinced and believe that you are the Son of God, that you are the Christ, the promised one, the Messiah, that you are the Savior of the world sent by God who became man, lived a perfect life, and yet willingly laid down your life for your own sheep. He rose from the dead and ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of God. And there, 
You hold all of your sheep in your hand. Lord, I pray that uh, the few who may be here who came in unbelieving, at least uh, that's what we might say having applied the characteristics of Jesus' true sheep to their life. I pray that they would this morning believe, that they would hear the voice of the Savior, that they would be known by Him and know Him, and that they would follow Him. And they, along with us, know and remember and treasure the truth that no one will snatch us out of our hand, out of your hand, that we have eternal life secured for us, and we will never perish. Lord, what good encouragement for us as believers. May we, as Graham led us so well in our call to worship, worship you for you are worthy. Praise you for who, who you are and all that you've done, for you've not only created the world in the, the general revelation, uh, but you have specifically revealed yourself in Jesus Christ and saved us. And so we have much to praise you for. And I pray we would go this week uh, taking every opportunity as your sheep to proclaim these truths to others, inviting them, as Jesus did, uh, to believe and to become Christ's sheep as well, that they too might have reason to rejoice and to hope in this life, knowing that there is eternal life stored up for them. God, have your way with us. I pray that you would not allow any to harden their hearts as we have all done in the past. We ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.